Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 104, Dr. Randall Rouser, Is the Atheist My Neighbor? Part 2. Dr. Randall Rouser is an evangelical, systematic, and analytic theologian. His Ph.D. in theology is from King's College, London, and since 2003, he's been Professor of Historical Theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton in the province of Alberta in Canada. You may know him from the Internet, where he blogs and podcasts as the Tentative Apologist and also produces the 59-Second Apologist podcast. The author of many popular and scholarly articles and book chapters, his books include... God or Godless, co-authored with John Loftus, The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetics Rabbit Trails, You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Theology in Search of Foundations, and Faith Lacking Understanding, Theology Through a Glass Darkly. But he's here with us today to discuss his latest book called Is the Atheist My Neighbor? Rethinking Christian Attitudes Toward Atheism. Dr. Rouser, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Hey, great to be back. Dr. Rouser, let's quickly review the main target of your book, which is what you call the Rebellion Thesis. And this says, quote, While atheists profess to believe that God does not exist, this disbelief is the result of an active and culpable suppression of an innate disposition to believe in God, which is born of a hatred of God and a desire to sin with impunity, end quote. Last week, we discussed some of the alleged scriptural support for the Rebellion Thesis. Of course, you go into a few more passages in your book than we covered last week. But Dr. Rouser, now I want to ask you, how do some Christians cite experience in support of the rebellion thesis? They would cite experience in the sense of encountering atheists to express hostility, which is putatively toward God, or reading their statements. Great example is Christopher Hitchens, you know, one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, that one of these new atheists, he passed away in 2011, but he defined himself not only as an atheist, but also as an anti-theist. He would insist that he hopes God doesn't exist, that he doesn't want there to be a God. And so people can read those kinds of statements and say, well, he certainly seems to be in rebellion against God. And maybe, you know, you have some other experience. A friend of mine, he had a co-worker in his office, and that guy loved to get in arguments with Christians and talk about how stupid their religion was. And, well, he certainly seemed to be hostile against God. And so through this sort of experience of various different instances of atheists expressing hostility, one could think that they're thereby amassing some sort of evidence in support of the rebellion thesis. Just by what, in your view, is a hasty generalization. Oh, very much so, yeah. I mean, it's in in the sense similar to you know, having a couple bad experiences with people who are Chinese and generalizing about the Chinese community. I mean, we would recognize that as pretty indefensible sort of generalization. And so I would sort of question the, making the same kinds of hasty generalizations when you encounter people who are atheists. Dr. Rouser, in the fourth chapter of your book, there's an interview that you did with a well-known internet atheist. Why did you include that interview in the book? Yeah, it's a good question. I included it because I thought it was important to invite an atheist into the discussion to share his actual 
stated beliefs as to why he doesn't believe in God. In the last chapter, I, I talk a fair bit about this concept of hospitality. And within this kind of context, hospitality is making space for the other, somebody who's outside, let's say, of your comfort zone, of your belief system, and allowing them simply to share their beliefs without immediately trying to refute them, try to hear where they're from. So that was my intention in that chapter, to offer this atheist, Jeff Lauder, an opportunity to share his beliefs and also to get his reaction to the rebellion thesis. And he noted in that interview, he, he shared some arguments for atheism, which were ultimately rooted in arguments that he believes are supportive of naturalism. So he presented that case, and he also responded to the rebellion thesis in, I think, a thoughtful and honest manner, saying that he didn't think that that was a fair generalization. And I thought that that was an illuminating and, and helpful exercise to have had that exchange. I think some ordinary Christians and other people suppose that atheism is just sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction against religion or against Christianity or belief in God. But I'm a philosophy professor, and you're somebody who has read and understands a lot about contemporary philosophy. And we know that the majority opinion among philosophers and also people in the hard sciences is what philosophers call naturalism. And this isn't just the rejection of belief in God, but it's this kind of methodology and also worldview where all there is is what a perfect science would describe. And so your interview subject goes into his reasons for being a naturalist. So atheism is part of it, but it's far from being the whole thing. It's, it's kind of this all-encompassing way of approaching the world. What that does is it helps us see that atheism... Uh, like people often debate, you know, is atheism a worldview? And I would say, well, atheism isn't a worldview uh, because it's simply the negation of theism. But atheism is typically embedded within a worldview. And so if you really want to appreciate the intellectual credibility of atheism, you really need to consider it in a rich context, which is embedded within a robustly presented atheist worldview. And so I think Jeff Lauder tries to do that. He tries to give a naturalistic understanding of the world Yes, rooted in the natural sciences, rooted in an understanding of nature and a denial of any supernature. Of course, those are disputed terms. But I think once you begin to look at that overall picture and see atheism as a claim that is embedded within this larger framework, then atheism begins to look more intellectually credible than if you simply consider it as a denial of God with no greater context. And it's a worldview that we have to take seriously. It's not just the province of ornery teenage boys. It's the working paradigm for, you know, the majority of physicists and biologists and chemists. So how can we not take that seriously? The naturalism, I mean. I mean, this is just a huge issue. I like to, to give a simple illustration to people that when uh, there was a time where there were these sand dunes in Africa and the indigenous peoples of this region they, they would go out into the sand dunes and there would always be this low hum. And they attributed that low hum to the existence of spirits living out in the sand dunes. Well, then you have scientists from Caltech go out and study these sand dunes and they conclude that the sound is made by the shape of the sand grains as they move against one another in the wind. That creates this hum. So then uh, they've effectively explained away a need to invoke spirits to explain the hum. And I think 
for many naturalists, uh, both the more intellectually robust kinds, but also the sort of village naturalist, that gives this very powerful intuition that theism just becomes this unnecessary hypothesis that we can simply explain the world through natural processes. We don't need to invoke a God. And there certainly are many places where that does seem to be the case, and that gives some intellectual credibility to naturalism. Just in general, they think that appealing to the supernatural is copping out and you know failing to dig as deep as you need to go into the purely physical and natural causes. And so they suspect this is just one more case of that. Yes, it's, it's a theism becomes a failure of imagination. I mean, I think Thomas Nagel, in his book, The Last Word, he says this pretty explicitly. I can't remember his exact wording, but he sort of denounces appeal to God as simply a failure of imagination, uh, a failure. Well, I think he says, he puts it that it's not an explanation. It's a placeholder in the lack of an explanation, that when you don't know how to explain something, you invoke God. And I think that's a very pervasive assumption for people who adopt a naturalistic or atheistic worldview. Yeah, and this is certainly a topic where Christians uh, who are trained in philosophy have really punched back on this. There's a book by Stuart Getz and Charles Tolliver about naturalism that has interesting arguments against naturalism per se. And yeah, all kinds of philosophers have raised troubles for naturalism. It's there's nothing obvious about it. It is a popular view. It's become popular lately, but there's nothing really obvious about it. It's not even obvious to me that science supports naturalism as a worldview. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. I'm not a, a friend of naturalism, but I do think that naturalism is intellectually serious as a position and atheism insofar as it goes with naturalism, then that gives one example of atheism as an intellectually robust, serious position. And I think that as Christians, it can be more comforting to, you know, of course, knock down the sort of straw men versions of your intellectual opponents. But I think that we don't do ourselves any service when we do that. So we do need to consider the most intellectually robust versions of naturalism or of atheism in order to appreciate why people hold those positions in the first place. I mean, if we still think that they're just stupid to hold those positions, then I don't think we've understood the position adequately as a general rule. Dr. Rouser, it's clear to me from reading this book that you do not think that all atheists are blameworthy for their atheism. But do you think that some atheists are blameworthy for being atheists? And if so, what sets them apart from the ones who are not blameworthy for their atheism? I think that's a very plausible conclusion to draw. And I think that what would set them apart would be perhaps having the sort of manifest evidence that is being presented to them. But what I would want to do, for example, is embed this within a more general observation that I think human beings generally, we are culpable for failing to believe things when the evidence is presented to us. And I think there are instances where people can have evidence presented to them that is 
a strong sort of compelling level of evidence, and yet they refuse to believe. So, for example, uh, I mean, I think back to Jesus talking about unbelief in his age and using the illustration of Lazarus and the rich man. And, of course, this rich man goes to Sheol, to the place of the dead, and, and he's suffering in torment. And he says, you know, he wants some angels to go back and warn his brothers about this terrible place. And Abraham in this parable says, well, they wouldn't believe, even if a man rises from the dead or something, they wouldn't believe this witness. So this suggestion that there can be evidence before you, and yet you will refuse to believe. Or when Jesus is doing miracles, and the Jewish leaders refuse to accept that God is working, and instead they want to attribute that action to the work of the devil. And of course, Jesus reprimands them by warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I think within this context, what we could say Jesus is warning against is people who have evidence presented to them, and they culpably refuse to accept that evidence, and they act as a result in a very irrational way. I think an atheist can do that, but I think a Christian can do that as well. And I think all of us need to sort of strive to have a healthy appreciation for our own penchant for self-deception and our own desire to vindicate ourselves and our opinions. So then for people generally, how culpable or blameworthy we are or something may depend on how much evidence we have about what should have been done or what should be believed and so applied to atheism, just the difference between atheists who aren't blameworthy and those who are would be whether or not they have sufficient evidence, that they, they're in possession of sufficient evidence to believe in God? Well, I mean, that would be part of it. But of course, it's one thing to have the evidence sitting there in front of you, but it's another thing then to ask the next question of what is this person's mental capacity to grasp that evidence? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I already mentioned, for example, the autistic person, let's say, who simply is, is perhaps they could be wired in a certain way where they just can't grasp it, then that would be a different situation of a person who cognitively is able to grasp that evidence, but simply sort of makes that willful decision to refuse to accept it and to retrench into their own positions. So, yeah, I think that it gets a little bit more complicated. And uh, for me, I'm sort of happy not to have to adjudicate on the culpability of any individual person as to whether they, why they fail to believe or not, simply to recognize that it doesn't apply to all people. It doesn't apply to all atheists, or at least I certainly can't make the claim that it does. So then whether or not one is culpable might depend not only on one's evidence that one has experienced, but also on one's mental abilities. It might also depend on how one has interacted with other people, couldn't it? You mentioned this really heart-rending case in the book of Mr. Giono, and this is from a documentary, and I saw that same documentary and was also blown away by this example. Can you tell us what that example is? Uh, this is a case of a person becoming an atheist, but for yeah. a pretty unusual reason. Yeah, this is one that I've actually referred to in several of my books now because I find it to be so poignant and challenging. So there was this 2006 documentary called Deliver Us From Evil, and it chronicles the horrific abuses that a psychopathic priest uh, working in California in the 1970s and 80s, I, I would think he's a clinical psychopath. I mean, that's not an official diagnosis, but the, that's the way he seems to be. He's certainly a sexual predator. So what he does is for two decades, he rapes children in a different diocese that he's moved around to. And the Catholic Church knows, has some inkling of what he's doing, but 
time and again tries to cover it up. So in the 1990s, this all starts coming out. And one of the families was the Giono family uh, living in this area. And when they first heard about this, the father and mother are indignant at these unjust accusations being levied against this priest that they had loved and that they had invited into their home for many years. So they call up their daughter and they share this news that he's been accused of all these horrific crimes and their daughter doesn't want to talk about it and hangs up. And in a moment of realization, they suddenly realize that their daughter was probably one of his victims as well. So they later on discover that their own daughter was raped repeatedly in their own home over a series of, of years, several years, by this priest. And the father is now an atheist as a result. And the mother has maintained her Catholicism, but the father wants nothing to do with God. See, that that's a case where I'm not entirely sure that Bob Giono is an atheist. He certainly purports to be an atheist, and maybe he is. He could also just be very angry at God. But whatever it is, let's say he's an atheist. Uh, when I look at that, I, I'm not ready to say that that's culpable. I, I can't imagine how I would react if I heard something, learned something so horrific as that. And I think once we begin to look at some of the reasons that lead people to become atheists, it again, it forces us to rethink some of our quick and easy judgments. So it's difficult to judge a man like that. We think, well, what would I do in a situation like that? And you might even think that he was just so traumatized by the experience that he can't then be held responsible uh, as a person normally would. Do you think that people who have experienced terrible, horrific evils may actually be rationally justified in switching to atheism just because they can't fathom why God would allow these things to happen to them or to their loved ones? Oh, yeah, I would, I would be willing to say that. So much depends on how things seem to us when we reason. So, for example, there are these fundamental epistemological questions like, how do I know there are minds other than my own? Or how do I know there's a world external to me? Or let's say in terms of moral reasoning, how do I know that there are these objective moral values and obligations? And in all these cases, there's a sense where we come down to some bedrock that I say, this is just the way it seems to me. It seems to me that there is there are other minds, that there's a world external to my mind, that there are objective moral duties and obligations. And if I have the reason to, to think that, if it seems to me that way, then all things being equal, I'm justified in, in thinking that. And I think that when you experience this kind of horrific evil that Bob Giono experienced, I think that there is a place to say people thinking, I can't conceive. It just doesn't seem to me that there could be a perfectly good benevolent deity that allowed this to happen, perhaps for some greater purpose. And so they find themselves naturally becoming an atheist. And that seems to me a rational position to, for them to be taking. Now you might think that was jumping to a conclusion, though, because a lot of Christian philosophers would argue that a person in that situation would have a duty to realize that their intellect is very limited. And so the fact that they can't conceive of any possible reason uh, that would require or justify allowing this shouldn't be taken that seriously because when you're observing, as it were, the ways of, a, of an all-knowing being, you're going to come up short and certain things are going to seem senseless or even wrong to you when in fact there is some perfectly good reason, just not a reason that you can grasp. You seem to be saying that 
no, there is no duty there. If it just seems senseless to you, it seems that there's no good reason, then a person would be justified in sticking with that judgment. Yeah, so we have these two different possible ways to think about it. One is, I can't see how it could be the case that P. And the other one would be, I can see that it can't be the case that P. And how do you justify going to the second one? That's, as I take it, that's what you're, you're, the question you're raising. And I'm not sure entirely how to respond to that, except to say that certainly I think that applies in a range of circumstances. I think that, that uh, again, to come back to moral objectivity. So, I mean, a person could say that, you know, if you're a naturalist and you have a view that morals aren't objective and that that's fits with your worldview and you can argue that, but I could still say, you know, it certainly seems to me that I am experiencing these moral intuitions. And so that's the fact that I could be wrong isn't in of, in and of itself a defeater for me thinking that I am indeed right in having these convictions. I mean, it's one thing to, to think about God having providential reasons for all sorts of evils that that happen in the world. It's, not, it's one thing to think about it in general terms, but yeah, if I really think about it in concrete terms with the, the horrific bloody details of moral horrors that occur in the world, I just find myself with a, a much greater degree of sympathy for people who draw an atheistic conclusion. It strikes me that it might matter what you're assuming about divine providence in these cases. So the question I asked before was more motivated by Christian philosophers who call their position skeptical theism. So in response to arguments from evil to atheism, they emphasize that there could be goods that God is seeking that require him to allow highly specific evils. And they really are wonderful goods and they really do require these evils. And if we can't imagine what those are, well, there's a lot of things we can't imagine. And this just doesn't provide any evidence uh, against theism at all. But not all of us Christian philosophers like skeptical theism. We wonder if you can contain the skepticism. An open theist is going to say that, take one specific case in which this horrible priest raped this poor little girl. An open theist is going to say God they wouldn't assume that God has any specific reason for allowing that one particular occurrence. But there might be a reason for adopting policies in general which make this sort of thing possible. And then if there's a, re if there's a good reason to have those general policies, well, there just is good reason, and this would be an unintended consequence of the, of the general policy. Do you see there's a difference between thinking that there has to be a specific reason for every individual instance or having a view of divine providence where you think there can just be... One way to put it is this view of providence allows there to be genuinely chancy occurrences, which God is not at all planning for, but he is allow merely allowing to happen. Yeah, I, I recognize that there are uh, what I've sort of described as uh, the most robust, meticulous providence view, which in many respects you know, has the most difficulties and problems. And there are views like open theism that uh, you would simply shift it. So, you know, you would say, well, could there be any general policy that would require a divine being not to intervene when he sees these kind of moral horrors being carried out on an innocent three or four year old child? So I, I can still see 
you tweaking this so so long as God has knowledge of what's going on. I mean, if a person takes a further step back and has a caretaker God who isn't even aware of all that's going on at any given moment, then of course we're moving quite far away from God as I define it at the beginning here of, of the last uh, conversation we had when I talked about a sort of classical theist view. So I mean, but you could adopt various different views of God with various degrees of providence. They would still have I think to some degree that intuitive objection. So I, I still think that I'll put it this way that, so we have very smart people who look at, again, they look at the same data and some of them, they just find this as not compelling. Some of them may be skeptical theists. Some may be open theists. They say, I can reconcile that in my mind. Other people look at the same thing and say, yeah, but it just seems to me that this is the way it is, that there couldn't be a God who would, have some reason for that, or there couldn't be a God who would adopt a policy that would allow that. And I, I'm still, I don't want to say they're irrational for taking that dissenting position. Dr. Rouser, how have your personal friendships with various atheists modified your perspective on atheists and atheism? Oh, that's a, a great practical question. So I, I've had a range of relationships with, with atheists, and I think some of them, I, I'd be honest, have, have been overall quite negative. One thing that I would, and I'm going to say some good stuff in a moment, so just bear with me, but from those, I think one thing I've noticed is sometimes some of the experiences that I've had are, that are negative, these were individuals who came out of Christian communities that were more fundamentalist in orientation that tended to have sort of simplistic binary views of the world. So they would think Christians were rational and good and people outside their communities were irrational and questionable. And when those people left those belief communities and became atheists, they often took that sort of simple binary picture of the world along with them and that made it kind of difficult to build relationships with them because I would repeatedly be subjected to statements about how I'm irrational or, you know, suppressing my cognitive thinking skills by maintaining my Christian theism. So I've had those negative experiences, but I've also had experiences with atheists uh, and I've had some very good atheist friends who are deeply thoughtful people, very intelligent people. And so what it simply says to me is, just as in the Christian community, where there's no one-to-one -one correlation between being a part of this community and being a sort of an affable, good, friendly, thoughtful, reasonable person, so within the atheist community, you have a diversity of people, and some people you'll connect with better and others not. And I think on each side, from the Christians and atheists, we need to set aside these assumptions about those in the other community and simply get to know people better and at least with some of those people, I think you'll find you're developing a, a deeper, more meaningful friendship. Dr. Rouser, is there a kind of weaker version or a distant cousin of the rebellion thesis that you accept? Is there some positive relationship between atheism and the love of sin 
If there is, how would you express it? You do hear people say uh, sometimes in candid moments that they don't want to be accountable to a God. And uh, there is, to some degree, that could be support for some rebellion. I don't think it's, I don't know how I would phrase a thesis about that, except to say that people often do not want to submit to God. And one expression of that could be a denial of God's existence. You know, I think another example would be to hyper-transcendentalize God. So I think um, Paul Tillich, for example, has taken a lot of heat He's from the fact that he took this very hyper-transcendental view of God, where he said, God isn't a being, God is the ground of being. And a lot of people have wondered whether what he says is really functionally different from atheism, from denying that there is any being called God that exists. But the interesting thing some people have done is gone on to draw a correlation between Tillich's theology and his own sexual behavior. So he maintained an open marriage and he was known to visit dens of ill repute, as we will put it. So some people say, well, his theology was supportive of his lifestyle choice. So I think that would be a better way to put it, to not talk about single out atheists, but simply say, we are all in danger of viewing absolute reality in a way that suits our interests and vindicates our own sinful impulses. So sin-motivated suppression of evidence seems like it just is an obvious part of the fallen human condition. Imagine that somebody's a happy slave owner in the American South 150 years ago, and, and they're not conflicted. They, they love having slaves. They like to use them and abuse them. I mean, if that's you, you're going to ignore evidence that you're presented with that people of African descent are just as human as you and your family, right? I mean, you're going to be strongly motivated by your your habits and your lifestyle to do that. Or, I know, suppose you're a pornography fiend. You might just refuse to admit that it has any bad effect on your wife. Like, no, she's got no problem with it. And you just kind of are actively ignoring signals that she's sending out. So it looks like there could easily be something. I mean, what what affects our personal life and our choices more obviously and more profoundly and more across the board than the existence of God? Yeah, I, I mean, that could be one expression of it. But I think equally, people can adopt a view of God, for example. You, you'll get some expressions of there being a God, but he's a sort of loving teddy bear. There is no hell. There is no judgment. There's just absolute unconditional forgiveness. There is only love. So you can express it in a very different way. So I, th I think, yes, you can, atheism definitely can be an expression of this sort of self-serving uh, view, desire to, to justify our own sinful impulses. But theism likewise can be formed in such a way as to justify those impulses. And, and I'll say this as well. Uh, let's say that a person has a sort of very austere understanding of God as coming down like a hammer on sin and judgment and sending people off to hell to suffer eternally forever in torture chambers. That picture of God could also serve those interests so long as you place yourself among the elect and you can sort of relish the thought of schadenfreude that you're going to visit as God's hammer some of his future judgment on people. So I think Whatever your thought about God, whether he exists or not, and how you construe him theologically, you can spin it in such a way to vindicate your own interests. So then responding with atheism would just be one way of 
protecting your own interests. You might also change your theology. You might also argue that whatever that whatever this thing is in question isn't really wrong. So then God's not really against it. Yeah, that seems right. But your point is, let's not pick on the atheists because if they're doing that to the extent they're doing that, well, that's just one of many ways of doing it. Yeah, exactly. And and there's a real, again, there's always this danger of self-deception that we can sort of uh, make ourselves feel a little better by looking at focusing on people in a particular outgroup and and looking at how that applies to them. And I think we always need to try to bring it home and say, well, before we worry about them, let's look at how we spin our understanding of God to suit our own interests before we start focusing on how other belief communities might do it. Do you think that sometimes Christians are too hostile or too mean to atheists because to us, the atheists represent our own doubts? And so we feel a need to keep them at bay. Like maybe we're afraid they're going to tell us some devastating scientific discovery that will disprove the existence of God or something like that. Well, I'm no psychologist, so I don't want to, to psychoanalyze it, Christian hostility, but I think that, that there could be a range of, of complex motivations to explain these kinds of responses. And that could be one of them that the atheist is, uh, here, here's a good example. So reading scripture, Christians tend to avoid all the difficult places, sort of, for example, the places that depict God as commanding or commending what we would today call a moral atrocity, like stoning children to death for a particular infraction or wiping out an entire civilian population. Well, it's the atheists who, when they read the Bible, those are precisely the passages they go to. A few years ago, a fellow named Steve Wells published what he called the Skeptics Annotated Bible. So it was a version of the King James that included annotations in the margins that highlighted all the morally problematic and scientifically problematic and historically problematic passages in Scripture. And if you have an atheist walking around with a skeptic's Bible under his arm, then Christians are going to find that very threatening among other things, and they don't want to be confronted with that. So I can certainly understand why that hostility would then arise, that this atheist is really unsettling their view of Scripture. Dr. Rouser, I was a little bit surprised by something that came up at the end of your book. You mentioned that you have debated atheists in the past, but you mentioned an incident where an atheist group invited you to debate, and you said, I would love to be in your debate, but I would like to debate on the side of atheism and let you argue for theism so that we can understand one another better. Was this just a mood that you were in, that you have uh, you were sick of the division between Christians and atheists and you were just willing to switch sides uh, for a time to try to see if people could understand one another better? Or are you really kind of uh, have a settled conviction that 
maybe debating does more harm than good. And uh, it's understanding that's called for rather than debating. Well, yeah. So part of it is is my own concerns about debates and wanting to be a little bit subversive of the whole framework of debates. So about uh, 10 years ago now, John Stewart, you know, he appeared on this CNN show Crossfire, which back in the day was the place you went to have a conservative and a progressive or a Republican and a Democrat ripping at each other. And so they invited him on. And I think it was, uh, what's the name of the, Bob Novak, was it? And the guy with the bow tie? Mm-hmm. I, f- I forget the two pundits that they had on it as hosts, but they invited him on. And he spent the whole show ripping apart the framework and saying, this show polarizes people into thinking there are these two simple options for every issue and there's no overlap between them and they're mutually exclusive and it doesn't encourage thought. It just encourages this sort of sensational polarization and it, it undermines nuance, etc. And John Stewart, he really deconstructed the program in that episode and he was one of the major catalysts for Crossfire being cancelled uh, within six months from CNN. And I, I think that that is a, a good reminder that we really need to be careful about the way that a debate, whether it's on a TV show, like a political commentary, or whether it's discussing a huge issue like the existence of God, it can polarize people into just trying to bring out their case. And it really, it doesn't encourage one to agree with, with one's opponent on a particular issue because that's a sign of weakness. You know, you've got to argue your case before the jury. And I think in... What we really need to do is is to challenge some of those easy assumptions. And, and I'll say part of this is itself apologetic. My concern is not to subvert Christianity, of course. My concern is to have people like atheists begin to think that Christians, yeah, this, this people are not threatened by hard questions. They will even consider taking a, a view contrary to their own in a public discussion or debate. And that shows that they really are serious about knowing the truth. Because right now, I think, by and large, the Christian, and in particular, the evangelical Christian community, is not seen as credible by the atheist community. And so whatever other arguments you may proffer for God's existence, if they don't trust the messenger is being trustworthy, then they're not going to be in a position to process or consider seriously the argument. So for me, it was not only subverting the form of the debate, but it was also showing that Christians are serious about considering all sides of an issue and not simply trying to forward their own views. Dr. Rouser, thanks for talking with us. It's been a pleasure, Dale. Thanks. Today's thinking music has been a track called Phase 4. You can listen to or download the whole song at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. This week on Facebook, a listener named Tom asked me, quote, how about more info on Samuel Clark's view on the Trinity in your podcast and on Eusebius of Caesarea's view and Pelagius' view, end quote. Thanks for the request, Tom, and the feedback. I do know that some listeners of the podcast most prefer the historical episodes. I kind of have as a priority to finish getting through the ecumenical councils and some other early councils. I'm not sure how much I'll get into Eusebius or Pelagius anytime in the near future. 
Samuel Clark, that would be a big and interesting topic. I'm not quite sure how I would approach it. You can, of course, get a relatively inexpensive reprint of all of his works in the Trinity. I'll put a link for that on this blog post. And I also discuss Clark's views on monotheism in the Trinity in a recent paper of mine in the Journal of Analytic Theology, which is called Divine Deception and Monotheism. And I'll put a link for this on the blog post as well. Everybody who's listening, thanks so much for your support. Thanks for sharing these episodes on social media. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your donations by way of PayPal. We've got lots of good stuff coming up on the Trinity's podcast. A number of interviews are in various stages of planning and recording right now. Finally, we could use a few more reviews on iTunes. We still have a pretty low number, and those will help other people to find and subscribe to the podcast there. See you next week. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.